Hi, and welcome to episode number 17 in the Signal Integrity Journal's Fundamentals Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Bogatin. I'm the technical editor of the Signal Integrity Journal. This episode is brought to you thanks to our friends at Rodian Schwartz. Today, I'm pleased to have with me Leo Bodnar. Leo is a theoretical physicist by training, but an expert in electronics. He's the founder and CEO of his own company, Leo Bodnar Electronics, which produces specialized high-performance electronics modules. Join me in my conversation where I catch up with Leo at his home in the UK, and we chat about some of his cool products. So, Leo, I'm really pleased to have you join us today. Um, I've been using your products uh, for a number of years. I'm really impressed with that little small low-cost pulser that you guys generate. And I wanted to have a chance to uh, talk to you about your company, the the journey you've taken to to get to where you are, and um, uh, and some of the the really cool products that you guys have these days. So, tell me a little bit about your background. So, how how long have you been in electronics? Hi, Eric. Thanks for having us. Um, uh, we, are sm- we are running a small company now. Uh, there are two of us, me and Simon. Uh, I've started about 10 years ago uh, when I've left one big corporate employer and I set up a small company that basically uh, is a is a extension of my DIY interest in electronics. And I'm not really an electronics engineer by education i'm a theoretical physicist if it makes any difference but i didn't I've know that been... well <laughs> yeah you're welcome if you want to ask me some questions but uh, i haven't I been practicing theoretical physics for for almost 20 years so uh, i've always been interested in some uh, electronics ever since i remember myself um and i i i was only able to pick it up when i left my uh, big employer and went completely uh, on my own so that's where it all unfolded and i keep learning i keep uh, buying books including your books and uh, i uh, watch online courses and i just experiment lots of experiments and lots of um, trial and error uh, simon's background is in uh, broadcasting industry um, um we just collided one day uh, when he was purchasing one of our products and uh, he joined us and uh, we now run the company together. The company is not too big. It's only four people um, with occasional help from uh, part-timers. So that's roughly the history of the company. Um, we do all sorts of products, including uh, some odd stuff like USB joystick controllers and um, steering systems for um, professional uh, racing simulators. Uh, some sort of lab equipment, um, some odds, uh, odd bits. And the Pulsar is particularly interesting because it's been designed as a tool to help us design one of our um, HDMI signal generators. Uh, so we needed some sort of a, a high-speed device that we can actually verify our equipment on so that we can use that equipment further on to develop HDMI um product including let's go yeah let's go back to the you know the the origin of your company that you said that you were it was an extension of your of your do-it-yourself um interests in electronics what this was uh projects that you were just doing on the side while you were a practicing theoretical physicist uh yes well i haven't really worked as theoretical physicist by some fluke of um 
um, fate, I ended up working as a business analyst and IT specialist for one of the UK uh, companies that made vinyl floors. <laughs> <laughs> and I worked there for quite a while, for more, maybe 20 years. But then as, as a manufacturer, you know, all the manufacturers end up pretty, uh, pretty sad in this country. So they had to get rid of stuff and uh, they, they closed now. Okay, um, so but on the side, you had an interest in building electronic systems and components. Absolutely, yes. I've been interested in ham radio ever since I was probably 12, 10, 12 years old. Uh, I've built all sorts of because uh, my uh, I was I was a child when I was sometimes in nineteen seventies and eighties. So you can remember probably there wasn't much you can actually do at the time being a DIY. Uh, there, there was Heathkit and and Radio Shack in in those days. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So yeah. Um, so it's it's all the I can tinker with. And as I grew up, obviously my my horizon expanded, and I I could see more stuff. And and, and obviously in nineties you have eBay, you have all this wonderful test equipment uh, coming in either broken or cheap. So it's almost like paradise expand. Uh, it's sort of. Was it, was it flight sims the things that kind of got you onto the usb side uh, yeah technically uh, uh the first commercial product i've i've made was for the flying simulators because i was i was trying to get my pilot's license at the time and i wanted something to practice flying at home and i just couldn't find a yoke that i can use so i ended up designing a usb joystick interface and, and uh, ironically, joystick interfaces and sort of USB small connectivity gizmos are still a big part of our business at the moment in the company. Probably good one half of it. Wow. And so um, these are interfaces to uh, video games or and other uh, game controllers? Yes, that you, you can build essentially your own joystick or steering wheel or pedals or handbrake. And you just need a small board that connects your your creation to a computer and shows up as a joystick. So we provide this link, which at the time was missing. Now you obviously can buy yeah. um, quite a few of them. But uh, at the time, it was pretty unique. Uh, I mean, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Uh-huh. And so did you actually provide the joystick then? You had like, uh, you know, they're usually like a little um, uh, resistor pots on the inside that that you're moving and, and you have an ADC of some sort to convert that to a, a, a digital signal we are not really uh we don't really have a a, a solid mechanical uh background here not not the background but facility so we can't really manufacture a lot of mechanical components so we we supply quite a lot of our devices to oems who then put them in their devices and they uh, ship them to end users under their own name but uh, they're powered by our electronics and uh, uh, well, sometimes it actually increases the the uh, value of the product in the in the eyes of the customer when when our OEMs advertise it as having our own electronics. Uh, we, we have pretty good reputation, I think, over the years. Uh-huh. Um, uh huh. In the early joystick products that you did, what was the nature of the the circuit? It was just in, encoders and ADCs, or any other fancy technology? Uh, we tried all sort of stuff over the years. We we worked with uh, industrial um, encoders from the motors, which are serial absolute encoders. Uh, I think it's SSI bus. And then 
and that encodes um, the digital devices that actually do internal uh, di digitization of the signal. Uh, some of them are based on resolvers, some of them are based on optical incremental encoders, uh, some, of some of them magnetic, but a lot of it was digital stuff. But majority of um, our products actually use simple ADCs, either 12-bit or 16-bit. Over the years, it, it moved from 10-bit. 10-bit was the thing um, 15 years ago. Now 12-bit seems to be a basic standard. And we have few 16-bit devices. And to be honest, uh, where the human is involved, going above 16-bit is pointless because you can't really control your pedals. Um, mm. I reckon even better than 8-bit. But <laughs> <laughs> if you wanted to, by all means, we can provide 16-bit yeah. ones. Yeah. yeah. It gives you a bit more headroom if you want to just select a small portion of the movement and then expand it. And yeah. And then you you transition into the high speed world. What was the the first uh, high speed product that you guys uh, developed? Uh, so that was the device that uh, it's an, we call it HDMI lag tester. It's a device that generates HDMI signal uh, that you send to a to a screen, usually either monitor or projector or TV, and then you pick up the image on it. Uh, feed it back into the same device and it tells you what is the delay between the signal leaving the device going down the wire and actually appearing on the screen and that is a very important uh, metrics for anybody involved in either gaming or simulation ask uh, most gamers and they will uh, get into a lengthy discussion of whether 15 milliseconds and 13 milliseconds is a huge difference. And wow. some people claim they can they can uh, spot the difference down to one millisecond. And but the situation at the time, which was 15 years ago, was that if you if you are buying the screen, you don't know whether you're getting 15 milliseconds or 95 milliseconds. Um, the way obviously the way of uh, measuring it using video cameras or or photo cameras or photo sensors oscilloscopes but you couldn't just walk up into a store uh, and actually measure the device where you're at the point of trying to buy it um, and we had this problem we needed to buy to set up a simulator where we needed three good quality tv plasma tvs and we went into a shop and there were 100 different tvs on sale there and we had no idea which one of them is actually suitable for um, a racing simulation so we went back into the lab and i designed this thing that is a pocket device that powered by two batteries and then we went back into the shop uh, pretty much same week <laughs> and asked the permission and then we and, and to be honest the salesmen were just amazed as we were and, uh, they were very welcoming because they didn't know either and the guy was actually a gamer because uh, he's eyes were bloodshot and he said I was gaming all night <laughs> I want to know which, which which TV is the best so that um, it picked up ever since then and so you were measuring the latency basically between uh, signal comes out of the HDMI driver and you see the image or, or signals comes out of the um, uh, uh, how long it takes to recompose the image on the on the TV from the HDMI signal Absolutely, because you 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 can't tell. Uh, I mean, uh, old CRT stuff was plain and simple, 
but now uh, they have to accumulate a couple of frames. If, if they're doing any sort of image processing, like uh, edge enhancement, they actually need a couple of frames to accumulate. And um, uh, it was very eye-opening things. We've seen things with, with, with a delay of 150 milliseconds. Wow. And uh, one frame is what, 16 milliseconds? On the, yeah, 60p, yeah. Uh, yeah, so tw 20 milliseconds on uh, PAL and um, 16 milliseconds on NTSC. And um, yeah, you would you would think, why would you need more than one frame delay? But uh, if the customer doesn't know, then manufacturers just took the opportunity to accumulate more frames. And for them, the delay wasn't a problem. And ironically, we've sold quite a few devices to big companies. I don't know if I should name the names or I don't know. Pretty much everybody in the phone book that makes any video equipment or expensive, um, they're not PCs, but computers. But anyway, uh, lots of companies bought our stuff, uh, manufacturers of the actual equipment. And I think they're using it for, it, if not for uh, production testing, but at least in the labs and um, people who launched the rockets bought it from us. Lots of people. Wow! And so, you know, what you found is when you have a device that opens a new window into some behavior that you can't normally detect, you discover things that you hadn't imagined before. And it sounds like it was uh, kind of startling to find the range of latencies that that uh, similar appearing. Uh, 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 TVs and displays had, but when you measure it, you get a wide spectrum of uh, of, of latencies among these. Yes, Eric. Yes, we we found quite a few things we we could uh, sort of second guess how the device actually works because you you don't only get the figure. We were able to uh, output the profile of the signal. So sometimes it's basically oh. like a Gaussian uh, uh, Ga um, exponential. No, exponential uh, sort of buildup of, of intensity. Sometimes, for example, on a plasma screen, you can actually see subframes. So there are uh, lots of small flashes of different colors. Uh, some wow. of the LCD matrix actually draws this the, the image starting from the top and the bottom towards the center. Some of them are having the image appear almost instantaneously. We, we, we found quite a lot wow. of interesting wow. stuff just looking yeah. at the... Uh, basically just waving your 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 sensor around the screen uh -huh. uh, you can reverse engineer in your head how it's actually working inside wow and so you ultimately you have some kind of a photo sensor then that picks up the image from the screen that you move across the the screen itself yes yes and well, we okay. we output pseudo random signal because it's not as easy as just outputting a white spot uh, on the screen and then picking up the intensity uh, because, well, the first thing is any LCD screen has a backlight, which could be synchronous or asynchronous to the image. Mm. Mm. And there is a big discussion whether it should be asynchronous or synchronous, because if it's asynchronous, basically running off its uh, some random frequency, it on on average, it just blends nicer. If you have any synchronicity, then there could be side effects uh, or strobing if your image yeah. is specific. I don't know. You're looking at the scene with a helicopter or something. Uh, so... Uh, the first thing you have to take out the backlight strobing because otherwise you you will be measuring uh, your backlight can come on at any time of the of the uh, of the image so you could be your 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 spread of your delay is almost one one frame long 
so we, we're utilizing pseudo-random sequence, which we uh, process and average over the time just to extract uh, actual image uh, fluctuating rather than the backlight. Because uh, we can control the image, but we can't control the backlight. And so you got started in a high-speed world with the HDMI signal synthesis, and you mentioned that that this was your impetus to design that high-speed pulsar unit. How did that play a role? Um, we we uh, so we we needed some sort of a device that could allow us to look at the signal integrity of our HDMI uh, device because at the time you couldn't just buy a a. a HDMI phi that, that will output HDMI signal. That was quite difficult. And a lot of it was uh, either under NDA or you had to buy millions of them to actually get your hands on one. So we, we used FPGA to generate HDMI signal, uh, which was completely unknown to us whether we will be able to produce the signal which the uh, screen will uh, will uh, consume as an HDMI, either on a logical level or as a signal integrity, um, on a signal integrity level. So we, we needed some sort of a device that will allow us to look at our signal that we are generating ourselves using FPGI. And that um, uh, friend of mine suggested that we are using, that we should use CSA 803 uh, Tektronics um, signal analyzer. Um, but we had no way to test this signal analyzer because it was a second-hand unit that he just gave me. Um, and I just wanted for myself to test how good this, this unit was. <laughs> and I just couldn't find it. Even if even its internal um, calibrator, it has quite measly output uh, when it comes to rise time. I think it's 100-odd picoseconds. Uh, and the head itself uh, was able to resolve around 20 picoseconds, I think. So I, I didn't have anything in this range from 20 picoseconds to 100 picoseconds where I could uh, connect to, to the signal analyzer and verify that it's working how it should be working. So um, at the time, if you look for the DIY, and it was a DIY project, uh, pretty much everybody... DIY Pulsar was based on Jim Williams' um, Avalanche Pulsar. And, <laughs> well, I myself had three of them, I think. Uh, it was easy to do, and it was pretty easy to, to design. But the problem with Jim Williams' Pulsar, it it's actually generates very short pulse. Uh, the Avalanche um, happens very quickly, but it also dissipates very quickly. So it's very difficult to get the sustained pulse with the front end, the front edge, and the flat top. And um, there are ways around it. You can send the pulse down the delay line and wait until it settles. Um, but it was all very well. First of all, everybody did it, so I wasn't very interested in what everybody's doing. I wanted to do something uh, unusual, so I started looking into the uh, devices that can output a reasonably fast pulse uh, signal. And um, there is a very few, there are very few of them around. Um, fast FPGAs, um, some sort of line drivers, and uh, and also fast logic drivers. But the problem with fast logic, it, you get very very low amplitude, usually about three hundred yeah. volts. 
and I wanted something closer towards one volt. Um, and then I bumped into the laser diet um, drivers, which seemed to be just a thing. Um, uh, I needed to bypass a bit of a, a safety because the laser driver, it tries to shut off anytime it sees something unusual going on. For example, it doesn't have, um, uh, you know, if it does, if it detects there is some problem, mostly because of the safety, if it doesn't see, for example, um, correct um, correct uh, quiescent current going through the diode, it will shut off. If it if the voltage is outside of the range, it will also shut off. Well, it it will actually not start until you properly configure it. So that was reasonably um, difficult part of the design to just to get the laser driver output the the sequence that I I wanted to send to it. And I read the laser driver is is a ten gigabit part, and I didn't really want ten gigabit signal. I want something more manageable, like ten megahertz, for example, that you can not only look at it on your uh, very fast, expensive uh, signal analyzer, but also on an, on an average oscilloscope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you guys settled on the laser driver as a, a general source, and then you drive that with uh, some oscillator then, low-frequency oscillator? Yes, we, we found that uh, using a good quality TCXO is, is uh, one of the best things, because what happens is that um, if you use very um, fast equipment, a lot of the time you have to provide the sync together with your signal into it. And it has a separate input for synchronization, or specifically CSA803 is like that. Uh, so you have to actually trigger it externally from your signal. And for that, you have to pick up, and you can introduce some sort of a delay between them. So you trigger the, you trigger the signal analyzer, then it waits a little bit, and then it samples your signal. So what happens, you're, you're actually synchronizing uh, your analyzer on the previous pulse, from the one that you're actually looking at. So if, you're, if your oscillator exhibits some sort of uh, jitter on it, you will not see a very stable edge and your pulse will be all, all over the place. So it needs to be a reasonably clean, low jitter signal if you want to use that. Of course, it's not a problem for normal, uh, normal real-time oscilloscopes, but for anything sampling oscilloscopes, like uh, that, that, that might be a problem. Uh, so you had a lot of uh, kind of system level issues that you had to resolve in the design of, of this fast pulser. It's not just creating a fast edge, it's getting the quality and the synchronization with a with another pulse. Yeah, it was a mechanical issue. How do you mount the connector? And it was the logical level and a signal integrity level. I think I went through about 25 different revisions before I settled. <laughs> <laughs> uh, settled on what it is now, yeah. Uh, uh-huh. And well, now your pulsar is, uh, I think, is it like a 40 or 50 picosecond, 1090 rise time? Uh, we, we have two major pulsar de- designs. One is BNC, which is 40 picosecond, and one is SMA, uh, which can be also used. We, we mount either SMA or 292 millimeter connector on it, and that generates 30 picoseconds. 30. Yeah, I used your um, uh, the 40 picosecond one in uh, one of the classes that I teach because it's a great reference source. It's got a really nice, fast, clean edge. 
faster than most of the instruments that we use. And, and so we use it as literally an ideal um, a step edge to uh, evaluate the impact of uh, the measurement system and the bandwidth of the instrument. It, it shows up very cleanly. So it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful little pulser. <laughs> Thank you for that. We we uh, we we have all sorts of different uh, user cases, and lots of people are using it just to verify their own oscilloscopes, which are not yeah. necessarily fast. Uh, even one gigahertz or five hundred megahertz oscilloscope, uh, often you need a reference signal to tell you that your oscilloscope is okay. Especially if you bought it secondhand, for example, or you try yeah. to repair it, or yeah. you, you to tune it, which is. A lot of old equipment needs uh, occasional uh, calibration and um, verification. So we we found people using it in all sorts of scenarios. Um, what are, what are some of the other high speed products that you guys have now? Um, we have uh, the lag tester uh, went from HDMI went went from the uh, 1080p uh, into 4K resolution. So we had to up the speed on that one. Um, um, that's about it, I think. We don't really... The Ethernet is kind of... Uh, we... I think any other thing that's really got high-speed lines on it. Yes, that's true. So we also manufacture, uh, manufacture uh, NTP time server, which uses Ethernet um, FIs on it. So our current one is... 100 megabit per second Ethernet, uh, where signal integrity is not really that much of an issue. But we also have, uh, we've designed another unit, which is one gigahertz, uh, sorry, one gigabit per second uh, Ethernet. And that, that, there you, you you need to look at your signal integrity before you, you're certain that it's um, within spec. So yeah, uh, gigahertz Ethernet, gigabit Ethernet is, is, is another one. And what exactly does that do? Just generates a PRPS signal with the Ethernet spec? So it's an NTP uh, uh, network time protocol server. So it, it receives the uh, precise timing from this from either GPS or another satellite system and outputs the exact time that it's stored and calculated uh, down the network uh, well, it, it answers the request from this from the clients, and um, if you, or, of course, if you put it on an open internet, there are all sort of delays which which sort of dilute its precision. Uh, it's still within uh, on normal internet. You usually can get something like one millisecond accuracy, but if you use it on a local network, uh, you can get precision and accuracy down to hundred nanoseconds. If your switches are good and non-jittery, um, which which is quite amazing for the Ethernet because the wow. frames are all over the place, but yeah. because it uses it uses uh, averaging and it uses it it calculates the time for the for the packet going forward and backwards and then it takes the average. Um, it's quite an old protocol. It's it's from nineteen seventies, but it's still in use today. Huh. And so this. Um... Gives you the kind of the real time clock information about what internet time is in the in the network. Absolutely, yes. It, it, it's 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 uh, produces UTC. It's accurate UTC. Um, uh, you need to know it for all sorts of different reasons for for synchronizing stuff for 
uh, power companies use it to synchronize their um, utilities and the um, uh, 60 hertz um, mains mm -hmm. generators uh, you need you need it to, well there are so many different uses so you need it for logging you need yeah. it for uh, security as well because some keys are expiring within seconds of them being generated um, yeah a lot of different uses uh -huh. How did you get into this particular device? What led you down that path? My friend um, Anthony asked me to design one, so I did. <laughs> he so runs IT company. Yes, he runs IT company, and he was struggling, with being unable to get a reasonable uh, quality oh. NTP service. So I designed one. It, it's a. It's not really a PC. It's a network appliance. It's mostly a hardware. It doesn't have operating system running it on it. Its only job is to get very accurate timing, and it does mm -hmm. it very well. It 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 can run on a at a full line speed of the uh, Ethernet connection. So it's uh, one hundred and ten thousand requests per second. Huh. Uh, our existing version, the new version, will be more than a million. But uh, to be honest, I don't know if you can ever find one million clients um, for that sort of device. Uh -huh. because the yeah. clients are supposed to ask for time only once every 16 seconds so you probably need 16 million clients to fully utilize it yeah uh -huh. so looking into your crystal ball do you have any sense of some of the other products that you guys might be coming out with in the near future uh we would like to concentrate on uh, on a lab equipment more than we do on on a sort of consumer uh level equipment and uh we are working on a few devices that generate uh, accurate frequency based on GPS um, signal. Uh, we're already selling them. They're quite popular. They're, we call them GPS clocks. Um, it's it's a, some sort of variation on the theme of um, GPSDO, um, GPS Disciplined Oscillator. Uh, but we output the clock rather than the sine wave. And our output is also typical GPSDO is 10 megahertz and it uses the organized oscillator inside and it's pretty simple device if you look at it <clears throat> uh, we, we are trying to output pretty much any frequency so you can put one two three point four five six uh, megahertz and it will output precisely that and you can add one hertz to it and it will mm. add another hertz to, to the output uh, that that device is very very um popular and we are trying to move on to another level of um signal stability and also to a new chipset on it so that that occupies quite a lot of our time recently hmm. and so you pick up the uh, 10 megahertz gps signal and then do a local oscillator and phase lock to that uh yes yeah yeah and then you're able yeah. to um, synthesize other frequencies from that local oscillator that that that's locked to it. Yes, absolutely, and and it provides both very clean signal, which which you can use in RF applications pretty much straight away. You can use it as a uh, local oscillator, uh, or you can use it as a very very stable. Um, timing signal as well. So it it's it's good in both phase noise. Uh, territory and uh, Allen deviation territory, which is a measure of the uh, long-term stability of a signal. 
because uh, long-term stability is provided by the satellite and the local uh -huh. uh, phase noise cleanliness is provided by the good quality uh, local oscillator. Wow, very cool. This is all the time we've got for uh, uh, for today's uh, chat. So I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to chat, find out about some of the products you've got going. Um, thank you again for the the time today. And uh, I, I just so you know, I've just placed an order for some more of your pulsars that I'm going to use in my classes coming up in the fall. And looking forward to uh, receiving them. They they shipped already two days ago. <laughs> so Great, we're can't, looking forward can't, to looking them. Uh, yeah, can't wait to get them. <laughs> okay hey thanks, Elio Eric. thanks so much for the time today we'll be in touch uh, thanks Eric. see you later bye 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 and that concludes my interview my thanks to Leo Bodnar for joining us and to Rodian Schwartz for sponsoring this broadcast and thanks to you our listeners for tuning in I hope you check out all of our other podcasts at the Signal Integrity Journal and that's 30 for this edition <laughs>